Tonight I want to talk about something that's a little controversial. I want to talk about the role of women in the church. This is an issue that's been hotly debated over decades and even hundreds and hundreds of years, just like in society where it feels like the role of women, the journey that women have been on has been up and down, controversial, emotional, debated. That's the way it's actually been in the church, too. Some people don't even know that. If this is maybe the first church you've ever gone to, you've wondered, well, I didn't even know that was an issue. Or maybe you grew up in a church where you were just taught women are not allowed to teach or to be pastors. So I want to address that and try to add some clarity where there is a lot of confusion for people about the role of women in the church. I am destined to probably offend someone in the course of this sermon, so pray for me. And I've accepted that, but I am committed to preaching the truth, and that is the most important thing. It feels like there's been a battle of the sexes going on, not just in society, but even in the church for many years. It kind of sounds like, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, I Right, like it just feels like there's this fight that's going on, and really it's typically different denominations and tribes that argue with one another about their interpretation of what the Bible says. And there are really two primary issues to consider here, two opinions and positions that people hold. And I'm going to throw out the, the, the theological term for you. There's the complementarian position and the egalitarian position. I'm going to explain these. The complementarian position is basically that men and women are different, that they complement one another, but usually does not allow women to hold leadership positions in the church. Many of you might have grown up in a church like that. Maybe you didn't even know you did. And then there is the egalitarian position. Egal kind of means equal, that men and women are created equal, and that men and women can really do anything interchangeably. Those two positions exist, and you might wonder, which one do I think is right? Well, I'll tell you, I think they're both right about some things, and they're both wrong about some things. That's my position. And that's why I don't like titles over debatable issues like this, because there's a lot of in-between um, and gray space that has to be considered, and I don't like to firmly lock myself into a position on something that no one can be 100% certain about. There are things that we are 100% certain about in Christianity. We we know Jesus rose again. We know that he's the only way to be saved. We know that there is life everlasting for everyone who trusts Jesus. But then there are these issues that people debate about. And the reason they are a debate is because they're difficult to nail down all the way. Now, you need to understand right up front, this is not a hot topic because of political correctness. We as a church really have no concern over political correctness. There's a lot of things we teach and believe that are not politically correct. We teach what the Bible says. We are concerned with being biblically correct. Okay? So, for example, the Bible says very clearly throughout all the Old Testament and New Testament that marriage is only between a man and a woman and that sex is only to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in marriage. Not very politically correct to go around saying that today, but it's biblically correct and there's no debate because all scripture says one thing. 
But this issue is debated because there seem to be scriptures that support different positions. And that creates debate. I have friends who hold both of these positions. People who I respect and love, who are believers in Jesus, and who we're going to celebrate in heaven with together forever. But I want to try to add some clarity on this issue. Let me talk about the complementarian position first. Mainly this position comes from two passages, and I'm going to read both of them to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Okay, so some would say, there you go, it's settled. She can't teach, she can't exercise authority, end of conversation, period. But I think you have to go deeper than that. And you have to ask, was this a universal proclamation for all time or a situation at a certain point in history? I would show, and I want to show you this, if you take this literally at face value, you have to do that with all of it. So if a woman can't ever teach, that means she also has to remain quiet at all times in God's church. So the minute you pull up to the parking lot, till the minute you get in your car to leave, no talking. I know a lot of guys are here right now, they wanna make jokes, but don't, don't do it. Don't do it, guys. Self-control, okay? But seriously, it'd be hard to be on the welcome team and welcome people if you can't say hello. This would mean that girls, you can raise your hand and worship, but don't open your mouth because you must remain quiet. So you gotta consider, if you take some of it literally word for word without considering the big picture, you've gotta do that with all of it. And that seems to create a problem because the Bible commands all of God's people to pray, to sing, to give thanks in church. So when you look at the situation in Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor, there were challenging circumstances in that culture and it helps us to understand by considering those circumstances. Scripture shows us that in Ephesus, women, particularly widows, were being targeted by false teachers in the community. So it doesn't surprise me that this is the one place in the whole Bible where Paul seems to imply that women were not allowed to teach. Also in Ephesus, this was the location for the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this was the epicenter for probably the most widely practiced pagan religion, the worship of Artemis. Now, when you understand what takes place in the worship of Artemis, I think that's going to help you kind of get the bigger picture. In the temple of Artemis, it was led by eunuch priests, which were men who had been castrated, virgin priestesses, and there were temple prostitutes. That means what you think it means. Okay, so the worship of Artemis, this false god, I would say a demonic false god, involved sexual confusion and gender confusion from the very beginning. The prostitutes in the temple, they would have dressed very flashy and erotically, and now many of them are becoming Christians in this new church of Jesus Christ. And so it makes sense when we read in the same chapter in verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. You see that kind of shows you what's going on. You have these 
women who had been temple prostitutes or engaged in this erotic, sexualized behavior. And the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, hey, the ladies who used to, you know, do all that crazy stuff probably shouldn't dress that way in the new church of Jesus Christ. Does God have a problem with fancy hairdos or jewelry? No. He's saying, hey, let's not be a distraction to one another by doing the things you used to do or dressing the way you used to dress when you worshiped this false God. So why is this in the Bible for us today? Because it's still helpful. The situation may have changed, but the principles remain the same. Here's the principle behind this. Don't be a stumbling block to one another. Don't be a distraction to each other. Keep the focus on God. Don't be drawing this attention to yourself. There's an appropriate way to dress when you come to church so as to be considerate of one another. Being considerate of other people so as not to be a stumbling block is a good principle in Christianity in general, right? Like, we don't serve beer and celebrate recovery. Then there's another verse that complementarians read, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. It says, women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. Okay, so you read that at face value. Again, it creates some problems. It means no talking, ever. But I think that that would be somewhat lazy. You have to look at the big picture. The church in Corinth, this letter was written to Corinth, the Corinthians. It was struggling with disorderly worship. And we know that because this entire chapter is about orderly versus disorderly worship. You have to look at the big picture and at the context. So the issue was that in this day and age, women were not allowed to be educated. For the most part, very few women were educated. And this was causing disruption in the service because these women were welcomed into the church, but then because they didn't have the background and education, they didn't understand what was going on. So the pastor would be up, you know, giving his sermon, and there would be women calling out like, well, what? What is that about? Can you explain that? And Paul was saying, hey, this isn't the proper way to conduct yourselves. We know that because the very next verse goes on to say this. And if they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. So these were women who they didn't know what was going on. What are you talking about? We don't get it. Explain that. Ask your husband at home. Does that mean that forever, for all time, that women were forbidden to speak in churches? I don't think so. The problem wasn't women uh, speaking. It was disruption. We know that because the last verse in this passage, it says this, verse 39 and 40. So my dear brothers and sisters, to sum it all up, all of chapter 14, here it goes. Be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. But here's the point. Be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Don't cause distractions. Everything should be done in order. So the problem wasn't women speaking. It was with disruption by both men and women for various reasons. Some people would say, but that doesn't matter. It's there. It's black and white. You can't tell me about the culture. We just got to do what it says. Okay, if that's true, there are a lot of weird things we're going to have to start doing. That means that uh, it would be a shame for men to have long hair because the same letters talk about that. So Thor is out. The same letters say that it's disgraceful for women to come to church without their heads covered. So all the ladies got to get your shawls out. It also says in these same letters to greet one another with a holy kiss. 
That's a command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So you come into church, the welcome teams, they're like, hey, good to see you. No, no. I don't want that warm of a welcome. And we're very quick to say, well, that's cultural. Well, if some of it is considered in light of culture, all of it needs to be considered in light of culture. God did not put these words in Scripture to silence women for all time or to allow men to dominate women. You need to realize this. The strained relationship between Adam and Eve, it began in the garden as a result of the curse of sin. In Genesis 3, God said to Eve, he will rule over you. That was after sin entered the world. That was not God's original design for humankind. God never intended for men to rule over women, but to lovingly lead, care for them, protect them, and work with them together. So that's the complementarian position. Then there's the egalitarian position. It means that men and women are created equal, that there should be no difference in roles based on gender. And they'll point to Galatians 3.28, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now up until this point in society, men were considered far more valuable than women. And what Jesus did is he would come along and he elevated women to being equally valuable to men. He said the things that used to divide you, like your religious background, Jew or non-Jew, or your socioeconomic status, slave or free, or your gender, male and female, those things are not meant to be barriers in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we all have access. We're all valuable and image bearers of God. But some egalitarians can go too far and claim that there's no difference between men and women. You could read this verse and say, look, it says there is no male and female. Again, that's why you can't just read something like this literally at face value without considering the heart behind it. Of course, there is still such a thing as males and females. Last time I checked. But the heart behind it is that both are equally valuable and gender is not meant to be a barrier. Some feminists have argued that this means that men and women are completely interchangeable and we don't even need men for anything. So when it comes to feminism, chauvinism, you need to understand this. When it comes to gender roles, God is not a feminist nor a chauvinist. He's a creationist. And I would argue that God's original design at creation before sin entered the world shows you his model for strong families and strong churches. So in creation, as it is in creation, so it is in the family, so it is in the church family. I think this makes sense. I want to explain this. God created man, and in Genesis 2, verse 8, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. And all the men said, Amen. Amen. He said, I will make a helper who is just right for him. So there's Adam and Eve in the garden. God brings woman alongside. She's got her vegetation two-piece. But notice, when Adam was by himself, God said, not good. 
He needs more. And notice this. Notice God did not give him another male to be his buddy. That would have made the most sense. The model had already been developed. Just bring another one along to be his butt. No, but God said, you don't need another bro. You need a bride. He brought a woman along to be a suitable completion to this team effort, which was to rule over and steward creation. Together, they went from not good by himself to very good. This is the creation model that God established before sin entered the world. Men and women were to work together to rule over creation. And as a team, that was very good. And I think this carries into the family. Picture a man and woman in the home, right? It's best for kids to have a dad and a mom. Now, sometimes the ideal is not real. And you have to do the best you can with what you have. Sometimes mom has to raise kids by herself. Sometimes dad has to raise kids by himself. And you can be a good single parent. Do the best you can with what you have. But it's very good when both are able to work together. Just like in creation, very good together. It's very good when the family has a dad and a mom. There's some things that only dad can do and some things that only mom can do. There's a leadership structure that was established at creation that remains in effect in the home. 1 Timothy 2.13 mentioned this, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And then in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the creation design is still the family design. Children, submit to your parents. The wife, she submits to her husband. The husband, he submits to Jesus. Jesus, he submits to God the Father. Now, look at that. Jesus submits to God the Father. That shows you and it proves that submission is not a dirty word. Submission does not subjugate. Submission does not dominate. Submission honors, and out of honor, you allow yourself to be honored by your godly authority. When you submit to godly authority, you're honoring authority and you're putting yourself in the position to be honored in return, blessed and protected and cared for. But you'll find that there have been men who have used these principles or even these verses to subjugate women. They'll go around yelling, you know, women, you need to submit to men. And I want to tell these guys, bro, if you thought about yourself submitting to Christ as often as you talked about women submitting, you would have a lot less problems. I read a tweet from Beth Moore. She said, I'm reluctant to trust any man who is obsessed with the submission of women. And I would say, me too. Amen. Because in Ephesians 5.21, it says this, to husbands and wives, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this idea that it honors Jesus to live your life in mutual submission to one another. That means you go first. No, no, no. You go first. No, I insist. After you. No, no, no. Let's do it your way. Okay. No, no, no. After, after you. After you. Right? And so like, there's this idea that husbands and wives, they honor one another. They respect one another. So I think that this model that exists and works so well in the family also works in the church family. In the church family, we clearly see that Jesus is the head of the church. 
He is the ultimate authority. And then we see that churches, healthy churches, have spiritual fathers, and I believe they need spiritual mothers. Why would, in a family, we say, it's best when you have a dad and a mom, and then come to the church family and say, we only want dads. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think the church benefits when there's a dad and a mom. So the first point I want to make is this. The church is better with men and women in leadership together. You could get by without that, but it's better when they're together. You could have a church with only women in leadership and good things could still happen. Or you could have a church with only men in leadership and good things could still happen, but it's best, just like in the family, when men and women are in leadership together. I noticed when I was in Iraq after several months that with no women around, these guys became increasingly rough, vulgar, mean, and smelly. The frequency of showering decreased and the frequency of cursing increased. And I just realized in that moment that there's something about the presence of women that brings out the best in men. My wife told me the opposite is true as well, but I was like, really? Are you sure? (laughs) But I believe that from my point of view, there's something about the presence of women that brings out the best in men, brings out honor and chivalry and gentleness. And I believe that in churches where women are welcomed into leadership with men, those churches tend to become more warm and compassionate and loving in general. Now, this issue came up because recently in the news, there was a well-known pastor who made very derogatory and unkind remarks about women in ministry. His name's John MacArthur. He said this, empowering women makes weak men. Now, John is a Christian, so I'm not going to make fun of him. But the way he handled himself in this situation was not godly. He said, empowering women makes weak men. I'd say, you're almost right. I just want to change one word. Empowering women scares weak men. (laughs) Only scares weak men. Because strong men are not threatened by strong women. Strong women make strong men even stronger. I think about how in this church... As my wife, Amy, who's a pastor at this church, has grown in leadership gifting and in preaching ability, she's risen up to lead alongside me, and we have an executive leadership team that has two other men and another woman on that team, and this team now, with this presence of my wife and women on this team, the church during these last couple of years has grown healthier, has grown numerically, the number of people getting saved just continues to increase, God has blessed our church, and the fruit is right there. It speaks louder than words. I believe men and women are better in leadership together. So we got to ask this question. What kind of person can lead in the church? I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, and just pause real quick, that word overseer, it's where we get the word presbyter, pastor oftentimes, elder, all interchangeable based on the Greek word that's used there. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So do we take all of that at face value, literally, if we do? Because you could make an argument that you should. It says he. It says husband of one wife. Does that mean that as a pastor, you have to be a man? Well, I would show you just once again, if you take some of it literally word for word at face value, you have to do that with all of it. And if you do that, then there won't be very many pastors left in the world because very few pastors have upheld those standards perfectly all the time. Let me just kind of show you how that creates problems. Okay, so it says has to be the husband of one wife. That means literally in the Greek, a one woman man. But if you take it literally word for word, uh, then that means that if a pastor's wife dies, he can never get remarried. It means that there is no single pastors allowed because he has to be the husband of one wife, which would actually disqualify the apostle Paul who was not married. It says he must be able to teach. What if you don't think he's a good teacher? He must be gentle. What if he loses his temper one time in traffic? Is he disqualified? It says he must keep his children submissive. Uh Uh-oh. What if you do all the right things as a father, but then you have a child that rebels? My dad would have had to step down when I was a teenager. (laughs) Must be well thought of by outsiders. Does that mean until someone leaves a bad review about your church on Google? So you realize these were not meant to be qualifications intending to disqualify people from being in ministry. These were qualities that God's people were to aspire after. These are general qualities to strive for. It's good to be gentle, to be a one-woman man. It's good to be uh, uh, well thought of by outsiders, right? So if they're not literal qualifications but general qualities, why can't a woman strive for them too. The passage doesn't say he has to be a man. It just talks about the qualities from the perspective of a man, which was common in a male-oriented culture. There are multiple places in the Bible where there are words spoken that apply to everyone, but that use masculine pronouns or are male-oriented. Here's one example a lot of you will recognize. In Proverbs, it says, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. Uses he, but does that apply to just boys? No, it applies to men and women, to boys and girls. But it was a male-oriented culture, and that kind of helps us to understand why this is framed the way it is. I want to make this point. Second, God uses women to preach and teach. Just because the Apostle Paul did not permit women to preach in this one city doesn't mean that God does not plan to ever use women to teach or to preach. And I can show you in Acts chapter 2, verses 16, it says this. 16 and 17. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and 
daughters will prophesy. Remember that word prophesy. I'm going to come back to it. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they, they both will prophesy. Why is this important? Because what I'm doing right now, you guys call it a sermon most commonly. This is a combination of three things the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about preaching, which is always used in conjunction with the gospel. Preach the good news. Preached that Jesus was alive. They preached that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah and the only way to be saved. So preaching lays out the basic path to salvation. There was teaching. An elder must be able to teach, but teaching is what it sounds like. It's instructing, helping others gain knowledge. And then there was prophesying. Good preaching has a lot of prophesying in it. Prophesying, it comes from the Greek word prophetuo, to speak forth by divine inspiration, to teach, refute, reprove, admonish, comfort others. This was done in church. Teaching was done in church. In biblical times, preaching was usually done outside of church to non-believers. I preach in church a lot of times because there are often non-believers in church. So we do all three of these things in a sermon. And if God never wanted women to teach in church, you would see nowhere in the Bible where women teach or preach. But you see them doing all three of those things in the Bible. Women prophesy and they do it in church. I'll show you. 1 Corinthians 14 says this. But the one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. That's what good preaching does. It strengthens others, it encourages them, and it comforts them. Good preaching does not condemn others. It doesn't guilt trip others. It strengthens, encourages, and comforts them. It says this. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. So I pray in tongues. uh, Because why? It strengthens me personally. But why do I get up here and not pray in tongues? Because I want to prophesy that benefits the entire church. Okay, so I say I say all that to set this up. First Corinthians 11 verse five. This is instruction for public worship. You can read the rest of the chapter. It says this, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. This is talking about how to conduct yourself in church. He was addressing the cultural issue of covering your head, but he expected women to pray and prophesy in church. We also see in the Bible that women teach. They teach men. In Acts chapter 18, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So we see specifically highlighted that Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, was a part of taking Apollos aside. They took him aside and explained. They taught him the way of God even more accurately. She was a part of teaching Apollos the way of God even more accurately. And notice God did not strike her down with a lightning bolt for daring to teach a man. I think Apollos benefited from their teaching. We see that women were expected to teach in church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, it says, Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. 
When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. So brothers and sisters are expected to do these things, to sing, to teach, to share a special revelation. There are some translations of the Bible, like the ESV, King James Version, where it'll just say, well, my brothers, comma, But when you read the footnotes or when you understand the Greek word that's used here, adelphoi, that is not a gender exclusive word. It includes men and women. So in my ESV Bible, for example, it says, well, my brothers, but then there's a footnote and you go read the footnote and it says, or brothers and sisters. This shows me strong evidence that the Apostle Paul expected that women, brothers and sisters, would be a part of singing, teaching, sharing some special revelation. God chose women to be the first preachers. You think about who came and told the disciples that Jesus had risen? Women. So we see in the Bible that God uses women to preach, to teach. They do it in church. They do it outside of church. They instruct men. They're a part of the worship gathering. And that helps us get a better overall big picture feel for what God intends among his people. I struggle sometimes to understand how some guys wrestle so much with this. And I'll be honest, I've seen men who get so angry about this issue. I've seen dudes actually storm out of church. Like a woman gets up to teach and they're like so upset. This is not okay. Women can't teach. And they'll run out of the church like their ears are on fire. Ah, it's a woman teaching, (laughs) right? And I would just say, bro, even if you disagreed with the concept Is that really the mature way to handle yourself? Because does it really matter if the person preaching is a man or a woman, or is it maybe more important whether or not they're preaching the word of God, whether it's originating from the Holy Spirit? Is it beneficial? Does it strengthen? Does it comfort? Does it encourage? I want to make this point third. God uses women to lead. God uses women to lead. If you're a woman, God can use you to lead. If God was against all women leading over any men at any point, you would never see an example of godly women in leadership over any of God's people at any point in the Bible. But you see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see in Exodus 15 that Miriam was a prophetess over Israel along with her brothers Moses and Aaron. She led the people in worship. Huldah was a prophet in 2 Kings. Isaiah's wife was a prophetess, mentions that in Isaiah chapter 8. Deborah was a prophet and a judge. says this in Judges chapter 4. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She was the spiritual leader and governmental leader of God's people at that time. The Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barack, not Barack Obama, another Barack. She said to him, this is what the Lord God of Israel commands you you. She was leading God's people. She was still honoring towards this man, Barak, but she was leading God's people. In the New Testament, we see in Acts 21, Philip had four daughters recognized as prophets. Prophets were always in a role of spiritual leadership in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 
says in Ephesians 4, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Remember, we already read, your sons and daughters will prophesy. His daughters, Acts 21, you can look it up, they were prophets. Romans 16, verse 7 says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. So husband and wife, Andronicus and Junia, they are respected among the apostles. There's a different word if you wanted to say they are respected by the apostles. So many theologians and throughout church history, they believed Junia could have been a highly respected apostle. There's a lot of evidence for this. And Romans 16, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church. She was a leader. This was an official leadership role, being a deacon. Not every woman has the gift of leadership, just like not every man has the gift spiritually of leadership, but some do, and the church needs them to use it for God's glory. So in conclusion, I'm going to give you quick four takeaways. Here's what to do with this. First, approach debatable issues with humility. On any issue that is potentially debatable, we should approach it with humility. Anyone who claims the Bible clearly says this or it clearly says that. I've heard guys, the Bible clearly says women can't teach, they can't lead, period, end of conversation. Well, they're clearly missing that there are actually more verses that support them doing those things. But I think we should approach these things with humility. There are some things we cannot be 100% sure about. We're 100% sure that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And then there are other things where we're pretty sure, but we should approach those issues with humility. Should not be something that divides us, but we as Christians should disagree when we do and still love one another. Second, remember whose opinion matters. So let me say to the ladies, if you come across someone who does not recognize your call to lead or to teach, don't get upset because man is not the one who called you in the first place. You're called by the Holy Spirit. That means you don't need to become combative over your role or your freedom. You don't have to fight for your freedoms. God will fight for you. God will open doors for you. That means also you don't need to wait for permission or validation to use your gifts for God because God already validated your gifts when he gave them to you. Third, if you're mad, you're wrong. This is my favorite one. Because really, wherever you stand on an issue like this, if you're mad, you're wrong. If you're the guy who gets mad and cringes every time a woman speaks, there's a problem but it's with you, bro. Really. And if you're a lady who is mad because other people haven't affirmed your gifts, you're wasting your time. You just need to get around the people who do recognize and affirm you in your giftings. God already has, but there are churches like this church. We stand beside you and we encourage you to use your gifts for God. And and it's funny to me, too, because there are churches out there that will say women can't be pastors, but then they'll let women preach and lead. They just won't call them pastors. We'll just call them something different like directors. 
I'm like, we're just playing word games now, bro. You want to benefit from their gifting without recognizing their calling. Doesn't seem okay. I just threw that one in for free. Fourth, we need all the help we can get. When it comes to difficult decisions as a leader, I like to play the game, what if I'm wrong? Now, first we go to the Bible and we use the word of God to direct us and we approach it with humility. But then you have to ask, man, when it comes to a difficult decision, decision, what if I'm wrong? Okay, so on this issue, there is no neutral territory. You have to be for it or you have to be against it. It's not an issue that will keep people out of heaven. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So that means that on an issue like this, there will be people in heaven who are wrong. And there will be people in heaven who are right. So then I like to play a game. Okay, got to make a choice. Let's consider the two scenarios. Let's say I go to heaven and I see Jesus and he says, hey, Ryan, well done, good and faithful servant. I wanted to talk to you about one thing, though. You know that time when Amy, your wife, preached and, you know, people got saved. That's good. And, and like good things happen and people were blessed and all that. But technically, she shouldn't have been the one to do it. And I'll be like, I'm so sorry. I just thought when you said your sons and daughters will prophesy, it applied to us. And he'll say, I forgive you. Welcome. Or let's consider the other scenario, right? Like, let's say you say, no women are allowed to lead. No women are allowed to teach. Go to heaven. You see Jesus. And he says, hey, come here. I want to talk to you about something. You took 50% of my kingdom, muzzled them, and put them on the sidelines. Did you not understand what your sons and daughters will prophesy means? I consider the two options, and I know which risk I'm willing to take and which one I'm not willing to take. Okay, I just think when Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples, it's such a big mission that we need all the help we can get. So we need men and women to be who God made them to be, strong, confident in Jesus, using the gifts that God gave them. We want to raise up strong men in this church. We stand beside and behind men. We want you to be the men that God made you to be. And we stand beside and behind women. We want to encourage you to be the women that God made you to be. Use the gifts that God gave you to build his kingdom for his glory. The mission is too big. We can't afford to leave half the team on the sideline. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We approach your word with humility. We want to interpret your perfect word, even though we are imperfect people, but we trust your spirit will lead us into all truth the way that you promised, Jesus. We want to glorify you. We want to do everything in a way that glorifies and honors you. We want your will to be done. Lord, we want this to be a church that raises up strong families, strong men and women of God. We want to please you with our lives. We want to build your kingdom, God. And so we pray that you would use us to do that. We pray that this would be a church that champions men and women to go and do ministry, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Lord, all of this is for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.